enable you to do what pleases him. There must be no grumbling and disputing in anything that you do. Oh, I was waiting for a big applause and an amen. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's why nobody, that way nobody will be able to fault you and you'll be pure and spotless children of God in the middle of a twisted and depraved generation. You are, you are to shine among them like lights in the world. Clinging on to the word, clinging, clinging on to the word of life, um, that's, what I will be, that's what I will be proud of on the day of the Messiah. It will prove that I didn't run a useless race or work to no purpose. Yes, even if I am to be poured out Excuse me, even though, even if I meant to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice in the service of your faith, I shall celebrate and celebrate jointly with you all. In the same way, you should celebrate, yes, celebrate with me. Um, so, a couple of things that I just really, really wanted to pull out that last thing, that joy, joy and celebration is, is just throughout all of Philippians. It's one of the, at the beginning of the series I said, is, is one of the themes that goes throughout all of this. And we have to remember that Paul is writing this again, not really knowing what, what is in store, if he will be out of prison, if he will see them as much as he wants to. But in, in one level, this is Paul, a kind of a spiritual father, or certainly someone who really loves and is committed to this people, wanting to say, no matter what happens to me, know that even if I'm poured out, even if, if I remain in prison, even if I'm killed, know that this is all part of a bigger plan, and our response to that plan is celebration. You know, this, this whole verse, or excuse me, this whole sort of portion of Scripture in, in chapter 2 is, particularly what I've read, is really a great big therefore or a because of the previous Philippian Scripture that we read, which is, was a couple of weeks ago before Simon and Joanna shared. There's verses 5 to 11. And if you haven't already, definitely take some time to read that. It is of throughout all of Paul's writing, who Paul is the predominant author of the New Testament. It is widely regarded, and most, most theologians would accept, that it is the most powerful, articulate, use of words to describe and articulate who Jesus is and in a way who Jesus is but who God is because of who Jesus is. Um, it is um, sort of talked about that it may have been a poem or a hymn that Paul wrote or it may have been one that was written just prior to that but it is certainly um, this what we're reading now is a response to that because of all of this and it is incredible that that theologically the, the strength the bedrock of of this poem of this work of art that work of art so you missed out big time if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago um, the fact that that a poem or a hymn a, a work of art could go be so theologically sound is extraordinary and it's divinely inspired 
And, and really, it is, it is this idea of who God is, who Jesus is, the incarnation, Christ coming into earth, him demonstrating being fully God and fully man, not, not considering, not taking advantage of, the, of his divinity, but, but emptying himself out. That in, in Jesus, in emptying himself out represents God who empties himself out. And in that self-emptying never runs out. And so, so we looking. So, what Paul is doing is that, in light of that, in the with the understanding, and and it's a hopefully an ever growing, ever increasing understanding of what that means. Like even that, just to, I feel like we don't wrestle enough with the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Like, I, I think we just take that for granted a little bit, you know, just become, it's, it's a little bit too familiar. I mean, the church has argued and wrestled with it for 2,000 years. We could think about it a little bit on, on occasion. Yeah. So, so chapter 2 is pulling together, is that big response of, because of this, but it's also pulling together in, in this chapter two another massive theme that goes throughout the book is that is that thing of unity and and holiness together that we we are to be Paul's invitation or more than an invitation the command for for the Philippian church and for us as well as a body of believers is that we are to be a people of unity and a people of holiness one or the other is hard enough the two together requires. God. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Like unity alone is like, ooh, you know, but but unity and holiness together. And so so we're we're looking a little bit at, at, at that as well. What does it mean to be a people who worship, who follow Jesus, the Jesus that's described in that previous portion of scripture? You know, what's Paul uses that starts that verse five and like what's it like to be sort of a people who have the same mind, who are being transformed, whose minds, whose thoughts, whose actions, whose behavior is being transformed by this vision, that vision of who Jesus is and that practice of following him. And we have the same invitation, we have the same challenge of, of how are we being transformed by that same vision of who Jesus is. I have been so personally, I was so personally sort of encouraged by, by Simon and Joanna's story last week um, and just been really, really excited about the fact that, that we, are, we continue to lean into what it is to share our stories, share our journeys. Marlene, oh, oh she's gone. But, you know, like the, the unbelievable privilege we have of sharing or inviting one another into our, into our journey and into our stories and how that not only benefits the sharer, 
you know, the one who's sharing their journey, but the one who are hearing it. And we can, we can encourage one another and we can build one another up. There's something so powerful about that. And throughout Scripture, and Paul certainly is looking through the lens of journey when he's writing this, this letter to the Philippian church. Um, that life is a journey. And, and that's, like I said, that's in the forefront of of Paul's mind, a devout Jew, because everything about their story, um, we have to remember, is, is that exodus, that journey, that story of being a people. Paul's a Jew writing to a church, and he's reminding them that they are part of, we are being reminded that we are part of a bigger story, an exodus story, and, and they knew it implicitly, but the smallest little word that Paul would choose to use would just bring all back to mind the fact that they as a people were called to journey with God, that God was leading them, but he was doing so not from afar off, but really close. Remember that Exodus story is where we're God was calling his people out of Egypt and he led them through. And it was, remember the, the I always get it mixed up, cloud by day, the fire by night. I always get it switched around. But do you remember that from kindergarten? You know, maybe the flannel graph if you're really old. Nowadays, I'm sure there's a, now that makes me sound old. But, um, but, but so, so this idea that Paul's using the same the same reference of journey, of story, that, that we are the people as they were called out of Egypt. And there's a saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one thing to take um, God's people out of Egypt. It's another to get Egypt out of God's people. Um, and so, so even in their story of journey, there is, there is a woven through of God transforming forming his people, take, take calling them out of a physical place, but out of a mindset, out of a worldview, out of, out of you know, 300 years of, of seeing the world this way to all of a sudden being taken out and being transformed into seeing the world, seeing their life, seeing other people, seeing, seeing how everything through a different lens. I think of last week, that incredible word that came through over and over and over again last week of the faithfulness of God to show us a perspective that's different, that may be different than, than the one of our own. That God is faithful, that he's calling us forward, that he is a way of living a, that is more hopeful, that is more fulfilling, that is good, a way of life. And part of what it means in verse 5 to be a people who are being transformed in their minds um, through, through the Messiah Jesus is that for each of us, we, we learn to think. This is what Paul's wanting to do when he says about, which is odd, you know, like so much more that I'm not with you. Paul is like any kind of good father the hope of any good father isn't that their children still rely on them at 24 to um, decide what to wear and when to eat and what to eat and where to go. <laughs> That's not the way, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know? And so Paul has that same hope that as children, as a church, they would grow and work out this stuff for themselves. They would work it out for themselves. 
you know, in, but, but crucially, they would do it in the context of relationship with God and with one another. That real life, that they would live a real life with him, that they would invite God and know God in their getting up and their going out. They would invite God and know God in the midst of their struggles, in their celebrations, in their doubts, in their certainties. Again, remember Paul's great love for this group of people. He cared so much for them, and they cared for him. You know, what does he mean in verse 12 when he says, your task now is to work at bringing about your own salvation. I hope that none of us sort of fall into or sort of take that, that old chestnut of we've got to work out our salvation. That is not what it means. That the, when it comes to salvation, it comes to all of that. It is not about earning God's favor. It's not about earning God's love. Can I just say, none of you are good enough to do that. And I mean that. It's probably the most loving thing I'll ever say to you. None of you are good enough. So stop it. That's not what he means. And he just goes on to say, naturally, you'll, you'll take this um, with utter seriousness. Like I said, a lot of translations say, in, in fear and trembling. So first of all, working out your own salvation we hear that in, in the 21st century in Western, in our Western worldview and in our, in our kind of me-centered world of, you know, my salvation, me. I have got to work out for me what it means for me to follow my Jesus in my way. Yes? No. That's not at all what he means. You know, we have to remember Paul is writing from a first century worldview. He's writing from writing to a church and in, in, in a world, a Roman world, that is occupied by, by um, a very, very authoritarian, powerful um, government. You think your government's corrupt and your government's controlling. It's got nothing Nothing on, on the world that Paul's writing in. And what, one of the things that Paul's meaning when he says, work out your salvation, he's not talking individually, he is, but he's talking about so much more, is that in Paul's worldview, whenever there was trouble, and there was always trouble, you know, the Roman Empire was this machine that, that, that just chewed up and spit out other cultures, other views. And what that meant was there was conflict around every corner. There was always battles to be won. There was always this sort of this cutting edge, I guess you could use, this expanding edge of the Roman Empire. And there was always conflict and there was always battles. And whenever they would win, Caesar at the time would come home. They would come home. And certainly in this context of when Paul is writing, is that the Roman Empire had just... Um, had just sort of overthrown a large portion of sort of uprising, and there was a relative peace in the land. And so whenever that would happen, is the Caesar of the time would proclaim, see, I have brought you salvation. You are saved. You're safe. You've got, you've got a, our world, our country is safe now. And Paul is saying, that's a form of salvation, 
But you, with your mind on Christ, you've got another kind of salvation, and your salvation comes from surrender, not overthrow. You're found that your salvation comes from, from serving, not dominating. That in your salvation, it is not about control and manipulation and power. It's about surrender. It's about death. It's about letting go and, and finding a new way. That's what Paul is talking about when he's inviting his people, his dearly loved church, to work out their salvation. Is remember, the way the world that you find yourselves in views the world is different than the way you see the world, the way things work. We look at that sort of, that. Um, there's scripture, I'm sort of getting off notes a little bit, you know, wicked and depraved generation. That's a really fun um, sort of thing we can say to the world. Oh, you wicked and depraved world. Oh, it's terrible. Um, that's not what Paul was meaning either. He was meaning that and I'll throw Angela under the bus a little bit. Angela's been doing it, writing it, just finished a paper on the ascension of Jesus, a 2,000-word paper, which she's nailed, I'm sure. Um, but, but we have to remember when we see Jesus, we see the ultimate example of what it is to be human. That's what we see when we see Jesus. He is the ultimate example for all of us of what it is to live a human life. And so what Paul is saying is when, when he uses those words, wicked and depraved generation, he's not just, you know, sticking the boot in or, you know, like having a good go at the, the, the fun things we get to do and, you know, sort of, sorry, I'm getting off track. What he's saying is this world, this life, being a human being is a fragile thing, and it's really easy to get off track, to get twisted, to, to find, to, to go off, off the rails a bit. Anyone else? Like, I know, isn't it? It's scary and sad and somewhat disappointing how easy it is to get off track, to get twisted, to, to forget and, and what Paul is saying is, remember, look back. Look at Jesus and see the way Jesus, that's, that's life well lived. You know, if Jesus had a hashtag, he'd be hashtag winning at life. Like, that's it. I think we're good. You know, really, finally, just that idea of, you know, fear and trembling. If you look again back, again, Paul probably, I think he chose those words really deliberately because to a first century hearers, you know, and if we think of the Old Testament, that, that sort of phrase, fear and trembling, always normally um, related to um, a gathering of people where all of a sudden, whether it's in the temple or, or the tabernacle, God's presence turned up. <laughs> and there was fear and trembling. It's kind of like the only response, really, that we have. And Paul's reminding his people that, 
or excuse me, the Philippian church, but I think we can again be reminded more so 2,000 years later in, in all of our working out, in all of our process of, of transforming our minds, in all of our wrestling with, with holding unity with one another and, and, and working out holiness as a group of people. We are to do so in fear and trembling. What that means is we're to do so in the presence of God. Like, oh my goodness, how on earth could we ever think anything but? Why don't we stand, and I, I think I've probably used a bit more time than I was hoping for, but Keith, would you mind just coming up and maybe... I think sort of, you know, just, just in, in kind of in our listening time and, and some of the words and pictures and, and certainly just... Um, that idea that, you know, for many of us, this season of life has not been an easy one. And whether that's, you know, sort of immediate circumstances or just generally, in general, excuse me. I just really felt like an invitation again to, an, to allow God to come and, to, and for us to respond in a way. And, and it's kind of a, a, a way... An old-fashioned way, but, but a way nonetheless. In coming forward, and, and in coming forward, acknowledging just that sense of God, we need you.